Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome back. We'll begin again with a 15 minute sit. You know, and it's just a way of settling into the practice before we address the many questions that you sent in. So find a comfortable, relaxed, alert sitting posture. Settling into the awareness of the whole body. There is a body. Sit and know you're sitting. Be mindful of the body breathing. Keeping it very relaxed, simple, natural process of breathing. Breathing in, know you're breathing in. Breathing out, know you're breathing out. Notice where in the body you feel the breath most clearly, with the air passing the nostrils, the movement of the chest or abdomen, or throughout the whole body. Simply to feel the sensations of each breath as it presents itself. Settle back, receptive, allowing.
if other bodily sensations arise and call your attention, open to the feeling of those sensations. Might be pleasant, might be unpleasant. And notice what happens to the sensation as you're aware of it. Notice it's changing nature. Does it get stronger or weaker? Fade away, disappear suddenly? Simply to notice.
as soon as you become aware of the mind thinking, when the mind is lost in a thought, as soon as you become aware of that, simply notice thinking and then reconnecting with the body sitting, with the sensations of the breath or other bodily sensations. When you're ready, you can slowly open your eyes, become aware of seeing, reconnecting with the world around you. So thank you all for sending in the many questions that you did. They were very intriguing. And I probably won't be able to get to respond to all of them, but I did group questions together with that had some similar themes, you know, that felt related to me. So I'm going to start with the very easiest one, which was how do you spell papancha? 
and call Lee to mention that she put that up on the resource page of the retreat homepage. So you can check that out. Okay, so the first, uh, the first more complicated question is, though I can tell myself that my felt sense of self is false, it's hard to believe that's the case when society and lived experience reinforce the opposite. How can we convince ourselves that there's no self? So of course, <laughs> there are quite a lot of questions about self and non-self. But this one may set the foundation for addressing a lot of the other questions. First to say that it's not a question of convincing ourselves uh, that there's no self. It's really a question of investigating our experience so that we are realizing from the inside what non-self means. And it can get confusing because as the question mentions, you know, this is not something that is commonly understood or reinforced, you know, in society or just in our conventional regular life. So there's one framework that I think is really helpful in addressing this question of understanding the conventional use of, of self, conventional experience of it, and the deeper Dharma understanding of selflessness. And that is the framework which uh, is talked about in various Buddhist traditions of the two truths. That is relative truth and more ultimate truth. Now relative truth is the experience we have of just our ordinary conventional reality of self and other, uh, subject and object. And it's just how we go about through the day. So in that sense, on the conventional level, or the relative level, we could say, yes, there is some experience of self, uh, you know, and so we distinguish ourselves from others. Uh, we look in the mirror and we recognize ourselves. So that's all on the level of relative reality. More ultimate reality takes us to a deeper level where we begin to see that what we're calling self is really a concept and that there are more underlying realities that are in constant change. And we are beginning to see the insubstantiality, you know, and the flow of impermanence. So just take a very simple example, which may give you a sense of how there can be two levels of truth, you know, or two levels of experience. So for example, you know, I'm holding up this cup and on the relative level, it's a cup and we drink out of it and it's useful and we can describe it as a cup, you know, uh, the shape and the style and all of that. So on that level, cup exists. On another level, if we looked at that cup under a high power microscope or under an electron microscope, although I'm not even quite sure what that is, but it's really, obviously seeing a level, very subtle level of reality, we would see that cup disappears. There's no cup at all on that level. And then it's just, you know, whether we're seeing the molecular level or the atomic level or whatever it is, it's just a very different experience of reality. 
So when we touch into that more ultimate reality of the very rapid changing nature of the elements, that doesn't negate our experience of cup. You know, we still use it, we still drink from it, but to the degree that we've had some experience of the more underlying reality, the more ultimate reality in which cup really doesn't exist, then we can operate on the relative level with less attachment, less clinging, because we realize that in its very nature, it's insubstantial. So self, the notion of self, the concept of self is like cup. You know, it does refer to what, you know, we would call Joseph, you know, recognizable, distinct individual. So we do live and live largely on that level. But through our practice, we can have the very direct experience of going beyond that concept of self, conventional level, and begin to feel this whole mind-body process quite differently, where it's just a very rapid flow of changing elements. And again, the, the benefit of this understanding is that the more we see this for ourselves, and again, it's not trying to convince ourselves of it, or it's not on the idea level that there's no self. It's the direct experience of this more ultimate level of reality. Like we're using our minds in the same way we might look through a high power microscope. We're using our minds to explore the nature of this mind body on a different level. And we do have the experience of the whole solidity of the body and the mind disappearing. And it's just a very rapid flow of mental physical elements. So keep in mind that we operate on both these levels and one does not negate the other, but if we can experience both with clarity and with awareness, it helps us negotiate you know, the relative level of our lives and all the interpersonal relationships and interactions with much more freedom because we're not attached, we're not clinging, we haven't solidified or reified, you know, some, some sense of permanent self. Okay, so there were a few more questions which maybe this framework of the two truths might help to illum illuminate. So one was, Wrong view is the belief in an underlying, enduring being at the center of our being. Personality has a genetic component along with environmental influences and personality is relatively enduring and slow to change. How to reconcile the fact of personality being difficult to change with wrong view. Okay, so in the same way, Yes, on the relative level, there is a personality and distinct personalities. And as the question uh, noted, it doesn't change as rapidly as, you know, when we're on the more ultimate level and seeing the, the elements uh, arising and passing very quickly. 
But if we understand that personality is the pattern of elements, you know, arising, and we see that based on our understanding of the more ultimate level, where things are changing very rapidly, we're seeing the selfless, empty nature of it, then on the relative level, we're not quite so identified with our personality. You know, we don't, we don't think of or claim the personality as being self, but rather we see, yes, this is the conditioned pattern, you know, pattern of our emotions, of our thoughts, uh, of our way of being. But to the extent, again, that we have some experience on the more ultimate level, then the personality does become a little more malleable, you know, and we can begin to see what aspects of the personality serve us, you know, are helpful or conducive to our happiness and which aspects of our personality cause suffering. If we have that flexibility that comes from the understanding of the deeper level that there is not a fixed core being, you know, and we see the personality just as the pattern of, as I say, of thoughts and emotions, then uh, we can be really <laughs> quite creative even with our personality. And, and over time by choosing more skillful ways of relating, relating to ourselves and to others, our personalities can change. You know, people can become kinder. People can become more loving. People can become more generous, right? And this is all through seeing that there is not a fixed self and there is not a fixed personality. It's all a dynamic process. Okay, so this is another related question, which I think is really important, especially in these times. Would you mind speaking more about conceit, mana, and identity? I'm thinking in particular about people with identities that are marginalized in our society and how we work for justice. Claiming I am for those on the margins can be a radical act and provide a sense of freedom. Yes, so I think this is a really important point. On the relative level, we do have certain identities and certain identities have been marginalized in our society. And part of the healing of that in a way is acknowledging, acknowledging the identity on the relative level, whether it's racial identity or identity of gender or sexual orientation, many different kinds of identities. And we want to honor that place in us, you know, of, of our multiple identities. So we don't want to use the teaching of selflessness to ignore the relative level of our interactions and our relationships in society. On the relative level, there is an identity and we want to understand and respect and honor that. 
So this is really important because that's empowering for us, you know, as we move in society. But again, if we have some experience on the more ultimate level, where identity really disappears, you know, on the level of subatomic particles, there's no identity. And there is an equivalent in our experience in meditation of being somewhat analogously on the subatomic particle level. That's how we're experiencing this mind-body process. So if we have that experience and we see that on that level, there is no fixed identity, then we can operate on the relative level understanding that it is the relative level, but an important one because this is the level that we operate on a lot in the world, but we can then do it without, without so much attachment, without so much uh, fixation. And it actually makes us a lot more creative in our response to the challenges that may come up with regard to our relative identities. So I just want to emphasize that this, this is really important. And this is an issue that has come up a lot, you know, in, our, in the recent teacher training that we just finished at IMS, it was a training very much wanting to emphasize the training of teachers of color. And of course, this issue of identity came up a lot, you know, in the training and how we can understand the importance of it and at the same time understanding that on another level, the notion of identity disappears. And so how do we, how do we integrate these two levels? You know, and it's just the same in the same example I use as the cup, understanding on the, you know, the subatomic particle level, there's no cup, and yet I drink from the cup. So this, this is really the maturity, I think, of spiritual practice, where we learn how to integrate and harmonize these two levels. Okay, so there was another somewhat related question. Are there examples that can be shared of knowing when and if to move beyond awareness and acceptance and into response and action? You know, and how does the Dharma experience suggest developing that skill? Okay, and so this tied in also to some other questions of, you know, the practice being about allowing, and yet when do we act? Again, it goes back to an understanding of the two truths. When we're on the level of more ultimate truth, we're really in just the experience of things arising and passing. We're in that flow, you know, of the rapidly changing elements. Then there's no cause to act based on that level. But at the very same time as that's happening, we are living in the relative world and we have to respond. And one way of understanding the response and when a response is called for, rather than simply allowing things come and go, is when some harm is involved, some harm to ourselves, some harm to others. So just as an example, it's, it's 
a slightly uh, perhaps amusing example. But years ago, when I was practicing in, in India, in Bulgaria, so in this, so it was this small Indian village, but it was the place of the Buddha's enlightenment, so you know, an important spiritual place. But in the village, one of the great landowners had a, a working elephant. So we'd often see the elephant walking, you know, on the streets of the village. So not infrequently, you know, I would be walking into the, the local bazaar, you know, for something. I'd be walking down the road and an elephant, the elephant would be coming, you know, towards me. So at that point, I wasn't just saying, seeing, 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 <laughs> thinking, oh, this is all empty. No, I stepped out of the way. <laughs> Because clearly, if I didn't, some uh, great deal of harm to me would have been done. So understanding the more ultimate level, you know, of just, as I say, the rapidly changing flow of elements doesn't negate the necessity of responding on the relative level to the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And particularly, you know, in cases where harm is or might be done, we particularly need to respond, you know, whether it's harm to ourselves or harm to others. That's when action is really called for. Okay, we may come back to some of uh, elements of this with other questions, but I'll move on now. Another question was, can you explain what reincarnates and or endures through lifetimes, which is not self? So given the Buddhist teaching on many lives, this is a question that often comes up. There's no self who goes from life to life. So this is going to tie in a little bit to what I mentioned yesterday about who being the wrong question. And it's really about what goes from life to life. And this points to a bit of a difference between the term reincarnation and rebirth. And many people confuse these two terms or, or conflate the terms and think they're synonymous. And they're not exactly the same. Because reincarnation is generally understood or implies some being that goes from life to life. You know, and in ancient India, it was called the Atman or the soul or something, some who, you know, which goes from this life to the next life is carried over. The Buddha had a very different notion of this whole process. And instead of calling it reincarnation, the term used is rebirth. And I'll explain, I'll, I'll explain the difference with an analogy, which may give you some sense of this whole process and understanding how there can be rebirth without a self. So if you think of a river, we all know what a river is. You know, we go and maybe we stand by the side of a river and we see the river. 
But the real question is, what is the river? The river is the flow of water. The river, river is not something in and of itself different than the flowing water, you know, flowing according to the topography. River is a concept. The word, the term river is a concept. It's a designation for that process of the flowing water. But river as a thing in itself doesn't exist. It's just a concept, a useful one, as many concepts are. It's a concept, a useful one, that is a designation for something. And what is it the designation for? The flow of water. So self is the same thing, the same level of understanding as river. Self, and we can use that, self is a concept that we use as a designation for the flow of these mental physical elements you know that are arising and passing very quickly which we can see for ourselves in meditation but there's no self apart from the flow of changing elements it's not that this mind body process belongs to something apart from it the term self or Joseph is simply a way of designating the particular flow of, of these mind-body elements. And it's this flow which goes on from life to life. So it's not that there is something, some being which is carried over from this life to the next. Rather, it's just a continuation of the very same process that is happening in this life. So I hope you get some sense of how we can use the term self. We can use the term Joseph and I and me and mine, use all of those as concepts and they're useful, you know, as designating uh, certain processes but they do not exist as some substantial entity independent of the process. It's simply a concept pointing to it. You know, and, and just to further the analogy of the river, we might think of rebirth, you know, from life to life as the river flowing through different terrains, you know, and so one life might be the river, the river of life you know, flowing through, you know, meadows and grasslands. And then maybe, you know, it flows uh, through a different kind of terrain. And we might think of each life as being a particular terrain in which this river of life processes is flowing on. So I hope this uh, was more clarifying than confusing, but I hope it illuminates the fact that we can use the concepts if we understand that they're concepts 
and not a reality, a substantial reality in themselves. And when we look to what the concept is pointing to, so the concept of self is pointing to this mind-body process. And then through our practice, we drop into that more ultimate level of the experience of it. We experience for ourselves the flowing impermanent nature of all of these elements. There is nothing fixed. There is nothing solid. There is nothing realized. And this has this understanding then has tremendous implications for how we live our life in the relative level, on the conventional level. Because to the extent that we understand the selfless nature of this process, the changing nature, we begin to weaken the very deeply conditioned habit pattern of clinging, of grasping, of holding on. To the degree that we are really experiencing the changing nature of things, then that itself, that insight into impermanence on a very subtle level begins to decondition the very strong habit pattern of grasping and clinging. And the less we cling to that which is changing, the less we suffer. So it all comes down. So I, th I think I mentioned this yesterday, when the Buddha was asked what he teaches, he said he teaches just one thing, suffering and its end. So everything that we're talking about, you know, and even these more subtle levels of understanding, you know, the more ultimate reality and the selfless nature of things are all in the service of freeing ourselves from those causes and conditions that creates suffering in our lives for ourselves and for others. Okay, so another question. I would be curious as to what advice or practices you might offer to teachers of young children. How can we have the most impact within our classrooms or with our families to teach in a certain way that would not perpetuate the cycle of conditioning of me, me, me? so that they get in an early age an introduction to the concepts you spoke of. How can we foster this awareness from the beginning rather than later as adults, working so hard to undo the unconscious social conditioning placed upon us throughout our lives? Okay, so this is, I think, a really important question, especially for those who have children or working with children. Now, obviously, it's not gonna to work to give a philosophic analysis of self and non-self. You know, that's completely inappropriate in this situation. But what can be conveyed is to emphasize those ways of being and those practices and behaviors that weaken the sense of self in their very nature. So for example, you know, teaching and modeling, probably even more important than, than any words we use, but teaching and modeling generosity. Because generosity is the act of letting go of non-clinging. 
modeling kindness, you know, rather than selfishness, modeling inclusion rather than exclusion, you know, of people around us. So all of this in just modeling wise behavior is actually weaken, weakening the manifestation of self-centeredness. And I think that term, you know, self-centered is really a good entranceway or doorway to understanding selflessness. Because just in our common, you know, parlance, I think most people understand what self-centered means. They don't necessarily think of it, you know, on the deepest level of self, but it's easily understood, you know, as being self-centered, you know, concerned more with oneself than others. And so I think it's pretty easy to, to understand, okay, how can we teach children to be less self-centered? Yeah, and so this is not this is not necessarily some you know abstruse philosophical Buddhist doctrine. It's just a way of, as I say, modeling skillful behavior in the world that has deep uh, transformative power. You know, as it becomes more integrated, you know, in the lives both of children and of ourselves as adults. So just one example of a change, a change of patterns of behavior, which was just one example, but it was very, <laughs> very striking to me. And this happened maybe 40, 45 years ago and really stuck in my mind. But it's a time I was practicing in India, in Bodh Gaya. And in a time in between retreats, there were group of us Westerners staying at this place, the Burmese Vihara, we were just having a little social gathering one evening, you know, among, among friends. And there was one woman there who was a musician, and she said she wrote a song about each of us, you know, highlighting each of us. And I, and perhaps the others too, I just assumed that it would be a kind of humorous roast you know, where she would just, you know, pick out our, uh, our foibles and created a song about that. But it turns out she didn't do that at all. What she did was she highlighted what she saw as the really good qualities, the beautiful, the beautiful qualities in each of us. Yeah, and she wrote a song about that. So instead of a roast, it's like it became a toast to each of us. And it was, it was just so surprising to me because it was, it was so not what I expected, but it was tremendously uplifting. You know, everybody felt really good. And of course, this, this way of relating to people is the very foundation of metta practice, of loving kindness practice, where it said, we develop method towards beings by focusing on their good qualities. And yet it's, it would be interesting just to notice what is our pattern? You know, when we're with people, either people we know well or just met, 
what is our first what is our first response or way of relating is the mind focusing on you know the difficult aspects of their personality or are we focusing on the really good or beautiful qualities even as we see the other part so it's not having some hallmark vision you know of people uh, you know and pretending that everything's all beautiful and all good no people we're, we're all complex we're all a mix but can we direct our minds you know, to emphasize the good in people and of course just as i felt you know as this woman was singing <laughs> singing this toast to us all and felt uplifted when we focus on the good in others that's a beautiful foundation for relationship for relating for inclusion rather than exclusion and all of this can be taught you know to young children right from a very early age okay another question how does one act consistently when not lying parenthesis telling the truth produces harm or pain am i responsible for another's response to a truthful statement now this i think is a really important question you know as we explore what right speech means in the context uh, of our path and i just want to emphasize that i find that speech is an enormously fruitful arena for meditation practice you know it's one step on the eightfold path it's right at the center of the eightfold path right speech and given how much of the day we spend talking it's really important to bring mindfulness to our speech and just as a little side i'm i'm reminded of another question that was asked about how can we become more aware of volition and intention that it seems very subtle and hard to catch well it's pretty easy to see intention before we speak if we're mindful enough and we we can be aware that we're about to say something can we really be mindful of that intention to speak that about to moment before the words come tumbling out and then see is this wise speech or not wise speech so right there we can get a very clear sense of the experience of intention and volition you know it's that about to moment before the action takes place we're going back to the original question one guideline that the buddha gave for right speech which very much addresses that question is the buddha said that we should speak only that which is true and useful so that's an important addition because something might be true but it may not be the right time it may not be uh, the right place to actually express that truth right yeah, and if we're aware that we're about to say something we want to consider is this going to be useful is this going to be helpful to the other person if it's both true and useful then it 
should be spoken, even if it causes some discomfort to the other person, because in, at least in our assessment, in our judgment, we see, oh yeah, this, this could be a useful time to say this. But if something is true and it's not a useful or skillful time, then it's not wise speech to give voice to it. You know, then we want to restrain, refrain from that and wait till a more appropriate time. So you can just keep in mind, it's a very simple guideline. It's wise speech, both true and useful. And that really, I think, can help guide us you know, in when to speak and when not to. So another question, which is really, is really quite, this is a big question. And I can just touch on it a little bit. So can you please expand a bit on what the Buddha said is so harmful in the belief in a core, unchanging, underlying self at the center of our being? So if you remember, I, I think I mentioned yesterday that the Buddha talked about how wrong view is the most dangerous of all the defilements. And in the context of yesterday's talk, I was referring to that aspect of wrong view, the wrong view of self. But right view and wrong view as part of the Eightfold Path is much bigger, it has more components than just the view of self. The view of self is just one aspect of wrong view. So I'll be talking, uh, I'll be interchanging wrong view and right view, but realize there uh, in our investigation by understanding one, we naturally will understand the other. So the Buddha talked about two different levels of right view. And this, in a way, relates to the framework of the two truths, the relative truth and the more ultimate truth. So he talked about, the Buddha talked about mundane right view or worldly right view, and then what he called noble or liberating right view. So mundane right view, or worldly right view, uh, there, are many, there are many particular specific aspects of it, but they all in a way revolve around the right view of understanding that actions have consequences, which is really a expression of the law of karma. And this is just interwoven into all of the Buddhist teachings, you know, that actions have consequences. And wrong view would be not understanding that or not believing it or not paying attention to it. Now, the reason this wrong view is so harmful is because if we don't believe that our actions have consequences, both in the moment and long-term in terms of karmic results, then we may not be that motivated to engage you know, in an active way with discerning which of our actions are wholesome, which, are, which are, of our thoughts are wholesome, and which are unwholesome, which are unskillful. 
if we don't discern that, then we're just going to be playing out whatever the particular conditioning of our lives happens to be. And so we'll probably be doing a lot of unwholesome actions which bring about suffering, suffering to ourselves, suffering to other people. And this is one reason why wrong view is so dangerous. If we don't understand you know, the truth of the law of karma. And it's not some mystical thing. It's really just the understanding that yes, everything we do, actions of our body, of our speech, of our mind, it has consequences, it brings results. Every action, it's like planting a seed. You know, and if we plant an apple seed, you know, and expect the mango, (laughs) we're not going to be very fulfilled. We want to understand what seeds lead to what results. And the Buddha was very clear about this. and, And the beauty and the power of his teachings is just, you know, he understood with such clarity this basic law of nature. You know, I think when Bruni was speaking yesterday about Uh, the refuges, and refuge in the Dharma, meaning the lawful nature of things. This is one aspect of that. One aspect of the lawful nature is this law that actions have consequences. So this is mundane right and wrong view. And I think you can see that without this understanding, we will get caught up just out of the habit pattern of our conditioning in a lot of unwholesome actions that will bring about suffering because we haven't really internalized this strong understanding of right view that actions do bring results. Okay, so on the, we could call noble right view, or it's it's the level of right view that actually liberates us not only that, you know, gives us guidelines for actions in the world that bring about uh, worldly happiness, the liberative right view, the noble right view, is what actually leads to freedom in the mind. And this noble right view, there are many different aspects of that as well. But one foundational expression of this liberative right view is an understanding of the Four Noble Truths. You know, understanding or realizing the truth of dukkha. You know, and sometimes it's translated as suffering, as unreliability, as things being ultimately unsatisfying simply because nothing lasts, everything is changing. So even though we experience many pleasant things in our lives, you know, that are not suffering, but even the pleasant things are unreliable as a source of lasting happiness, precisely because they don't last. And so this understanding of the first noble truth of dukkha is really important, especially as we explore the second noble truth, which is the cause of suffering. You know, what what is the cause behind the suffering? behind this dukkha and the Buddha highlighted the essential role of craving, you know, or clinging 
as being the source of um, suffering in our lives. So, I mean, it all, it all is, this, this all fits together because in this noble right view, we are seeing, and through our meditative practice, we're seeing the impermanent nature on a very microscopic level, although we can see it on any level that we look at, exchange is pervasive on all levels, but when we see it on the microscopic level in our meditation practice and we're experiencing this whole mind-body process, it's just a very rapid flow of elements. That very seeing deconditions grasping, deconditions clinging. And yet when we don't have this liberative right view of the truth of dukkha and the cause of dukkha, and the way to free ourselves from the cause of dukkha, then we just go on in the ordinary flow of our lives, getting caught up in clinging to the pleasant and having aversion to the unpleasant. And we just get further enmeshed in this whole samsaric unfolding. So this is another way that wrong view is very dangerous right? because it keeps us locked in to the very causes of suffering. And noble right view, liberative right view, frees us from those causes. And we begin to feel for ourselves, even you know, in, in momentary ways perhaps, or you know, over time, for longer, longer periods of time, we really can taste the third noble truth, which is the end of suffering. And just, I'm reminded just in the moment now of a really important realization I had, and this goes back, not to the beginning of my practice, to maybe, I don't know, 15 years ago or something like that. So I was sitting and for some reason I was reflecting on the four noble truths and about the third noble truth being the end of craving, now, craving being the cause of suffering. The end of suffering is the end of craving. And the Buddha was very explicit about this. You know, after his enlightenment, he said, realized is the unconditioned, achieved is the end of craving. So it's a very explicit statement about what frees and liberates the heart and mind. But I had always, uh, held that understanding of the third noble truth as some far off goal. It made total sense to me, but I thought, oh, yeah, this, you know, maybe in 20 years or 30 years or five lifetimes or however long, I'll come to the end of craving. And so I was practicing with that, you know, as a goal far in the future. As my sweatshirt story, I think, revealed of a little way to go to come to the final end of craving. However, in that uh, sitting that I'm talking about now, I had, a, I had a sudden change of understanding. And it was about realizing, yes, the complete uprooting of craving is probably some way off. But we can experience the end of craving for a moment, in this moment. You know, in the letting go, we let go of the craving 
the wanting, the clinging. We can experience, we can experience the mind that is free of that kind of uh, desire. And in that moment and for those moments, even if it's just for a few moments, we are actually tasting, we could say the piece of temporary Nibbana, the end of suffering. Right? It's not the end, there's still more craving uh, that's in there. But for that period of time, we have a real taste of it. And then that become, became tremendously energizing for me in the practice and in a way highlighted what the practice is actually about. You know, yesterday I was speaking about one kind of craving, the craving for becoming. And we can see this in our meditation practice. Very often we're practicing for this or that experience. Right? We want to become, you know, in that way. But really this, this highlighting the fact that we can practice the end of craving in this moment. So then it reminds us that the practice is really not about getting some new experience. It's the real heart of the practice is letting go of that wanting. And in that moment, and we can, we can actually do that and experience that for ourselves. As I say, it might just be for a few moments, but it's a genuine taste you know, of that possibility of freedom. Okay, so I hope this answers in some question why wrong view can be so dangerous in that it just entangles us often not even understanding why or how, but it's entangling us in suffering. You know, if we don't really understand that actions have consequences, then we're not paying attention to whether our actions are skillful or unskillful. When we don't pay attention to our exploration of the Four Noble Truths of you know, suffering or dukkha and its causes and the end of dukkha, on the end of craving, then we just stay enmeshed in, as I say, the patterns of our conditioning. So this is why there's so much danger in wrong view and there's so much potential or the possibility of freedom in right view. And right view is, is really reminding us that this whole path is a path of happiness. That's what the Buddha was teaching, all the different kinds of happiness, both worldly, mundane, and also the happiness of liberation. This is just really a brief summary of right and wrong view. If you'd like to explore it further, I'd recommend if any of you happen to have a copy of my book, Mindfulness, rather large book, but I have two chapters on right view. And I go into much more detail about the different aspects of it. So for those of you interested, you might look at that. Okay. So there were a few questions all related. Could you speak about spiritual bypassing? So that was one. 
this is another uh, which is related in a way which I'll talk about. I am noting flooding from an interaction with my daughter and feeling resentment and hurt. How do I work with this in practice? How does anatta, selflessness, pertain to this? And then there were a few others. In your example of losing mindfulness at retreat and by responding by letting go of your sense of self, you might have gone the other way and experienced fully how terrible you felt about yourself. Comments on these, comment on these two apparently opposite ways of responding. Okay, last related question was, I often wake with horrible thoughts about what I did or didn't do as a young mother. My children are now in their 40s, are beautiful people and don't hold resentment towards me or their upbringing. Now that I know a small bit about Papancha, how do I work with these thoughts to turn them from self-abuse to compassion? Okay, so in some way, they're all related about what spiritual bypassing is and what it isn't. A spiritual bypass is when we use a Dharma concept to avoid acknowledging or feeling or experiencing what we're actually going through. You know, if we're having some difficult experience, and it could be any of the ones mentioned, you know, so some difficult emotion, oh, it's all empty. You know, and then we just dismiss it and we don't deal with it. So that's what a spiritual bypass is. In our practice, letting go of those feelings or emotions or thoughts that are causing us suffering, it's not a question of denying it or just you know, using a concept, oh, it's all empty, it doesn't matter, which is not gonna work anyway because the practice of applying our understanding of selflessness is not on the concept level. It's not just thinking, oh yeah, things are selfless and then everything's fine. No, it comes from the realization of things being empty of self. So when we have to some degree, you know, at whatever level we do, some understanding of the selfless nature, you know, and of the workings of mana, of conceit, of claiming things to be I am. Oh, I'm so terrible, or I'm so bad for you know, some actions that I may have done. We really want to acknowledge, to start with the acknowledgement of how we're feeling and feeling it. You know, we feel the upset, or we feel kind of the self-criticism uh, or the self-judgment. So we're not denying it. We're not pretending that it's not there. We actually are in the experience of it, but not staying in that experience if it's simply causing us suffering. You know, because that's like holding on to a hot burning coal and thinking, well, I should be holding on to it, you know, because I really did do something wrong or uh, whatever. We justify, you know, those feelings to ourselves and then think we should hold on to them. Well, that doesn't make sense because we're just holding on to suffering. 
So once we have acknowledged, once we have embodied, once we feel what we're feeling, that's when we can begin to investigate and remind ourselves of the selfless nature of those thoughts, of those emotions, you know? And as I was speaking yesterday, just by saying, oh yeah, this is just mana. This is just the, the identifying with that emotion. That's the mana, right? And as soon as you see that identification as being the working of that particular defilement of the mind, oh, that's just mana. It really releases, it releases our grip on that particular unwholesome or uh, suffering state. So it's really important to begin to see this. So there's one discernment that I think just is a furtherance of this understanding. And that is, and it, it kind of highlights, it's one example, you know, of freeing ourselves from the identification with these painful states and yet acknowledging them at the same time. So this is the discernment of the difference between guilt and remorse. Again, this is, this is something that um, experience I had goes back many, many years, you know, more toward the beginning of my practice. I was doing a retreat at IMS and I don't even remember the details of the story, but for whatever reason, something had come to mind and I was feeling really guilty about it. And the guilt was really strong. I was, I was really beating myself up with guilt. And at a certain point, I think I've mentioned this, for myself, when I'm suffering, it really piques my interest. So like, I want to find out, I want to investigate, well, what's causing this suffering? So after some time of just drowning in the guilt, I just started looking more carefully, what is going on here? And I began to see that guilt was just an ego trip. It was just strengthening the sense of I, of self in a negative way. I'm so bad. I'm so awful. Look what I did. You know, I, 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 as I say, in a negative way, in a way that causes suffering. So as soon as I saw that guilt was just a trick of the ego, right? That was like one of those moments, Mara, I see you, right? This force trying to draw us into suffering. Then I began to see an alternative to understanding, yes, you know, I may have done something that was unwholesome, unskillful, that initially caused all this guilt to arise. But then when I saw that guilt was an ego trip, the alternative is what I'm calling, people might have their own word for it, I'm calling it remorse. And in the feeling of remorse, that is the acknowledgement that yes, did something that was not skillful, that may have caused some harm, caused some suffering. So we see that, we acknowledge it, we make amends if possible, if there's some way of doing that, 
but we're also understanding it from a place of wisdom of seeing the selfless nature of it. You know, that act, that unwholesome act doesn't define us. It was just an act that had certain consequences. So in the, in the field of wisdom and remorse, we see that, we understand, we take responsibility for it, but we also see the impermanence in the flow, you know? And so we can actually forgive ourselves because we have acknowledged it, we have taken responsibility for it, and we're not locking it in with this feeling of guilt, which is just strengthening the ego in all of it. So I hope you see that this is a way, This again, this, it, it really is all related to spiritual bypassing and how we can be with things either by denying them, which is not very helpful or skillful, or opening them, feeling them, and then freeing ourselves from our enmeshment in the suffering, which really has to do with seeing the impermanence and the selfless nature of it all. And I find that this discernment between guilt and remorse has really been helpful because of course, in our lives, we all do things that are unskillful at different times. Yeah, and so we want some way of relating that's healthy, you know, where, where we can see it, acknowledge it, and also let go and move on. Okay. So there was one that was a little amusing to me. When you were out doing walking meditation in the cold wind, then getting lost in Hawaii, Hawaii dreams, what kept you from going inside and putting on a coat instead? There was one other question about the walking, but I don't see it right now. Uh, but it was a, a, it was a similar thing. <laughs> Why didn't I just walk inside instead? Well, of course, I did have a coat on in that very cold weather. But the question just brought up a quality that at times I found really helpful in the practice. And that is being willing to play at the edges of our discomfort. Right. And so for me, even though it was this ice burning cold and, uh, and I didn't stay out there that long, but I was interested. I was just interested in experiencing that intense cold, you know, and it was painful, but I just wanted to feel it. Okay. Well, what is this like? And, and, what does unbearable mean? <laughs> you know, and this is not like a masochistic self-torture. Uh, I, was, I was actually interested. And what's the nature of the mind, the nature of awareness that knows this unpleasantness? Yeah, and so just being willing at times to play at these edges of our comfort zone. You know, and it doesn't have to be outside in the cold. It can be just in our the sitting practice, you know, when we're feeling some discomfort. I and mean, it could be physical discomfort. It could be emotional discomfort. And maybe we'll see the tendency just to pull back because we don't want to feel the unpleasantness of it. Well, 
an important part of the practice when there's feels like there's enough balance and interest. So this there's no you know compulsion or we should be forcing ourselves to do this. No, it's just it's really playing. As I say, playing at the edges because we all have a comfort zone. In this level of experience, we're okay with. And then maybe we have some experience and it's pushing at those edges where we're not relaxed, we're not open, we're not accepting of it. Okay, can we spend a little time right at that edge, seeing if we can relax? Okay, open, let me feel it. Let me feel the pain, let me feel the discomfort. Let me feel this difficult emotion. Can I come to a place of acceptance rather than uh, pulling back into our comfort zone? And as we do this, in, in some way, I think this is the trajectory of our practice. You know, and when I imagine, and this is just my imagination, but when I imagine the Buddha's mind and the trajectory toward Buddha mind, one of the ways I think of it is, okay, we each have our comfort zone, we come to the edge, we relax, we open, and our zone gets a little wider, and again, wider, wider, wider. And my imagination of the Buddha mind is a mind without edges, a mind without boundaries, right? where whatever arises is just arising in the field, we could say, of emptiness or selflessness or the field of wisdom no boundaries, no edges, and therefore no fear. And so I just find this a useful, useful way of understanding how our practice deepens and how it grows and how we get stronger and more inclusive of all the aspects of our experience. And we can't force it. You know, this, one of the things I love about this practice is it's very organic. You know, we, we don't have to force ourselves into anything. We just have to be willing to be interested, to be interested in our own experience, to be interested in times of suffering and investigating, okay, well, what's the cause of this suffering? How is my mind getting caught up? How is it getting enmeshed? And of course, this is a lot of what I was talking about yesterday, those three tendencies which do enmesh us in suffering. So I hope that there were a few, quite a few other uh, really interesting questions. So maybe just in the next couple of days, uh, we'll have a chance to explore some of those as well. So thank you for your attention. I hope you get as excited about Dharma practice as I do. It is just, you know, the Buddhist teaching, it's just such an amazing gift to us all because the Buddha had such clarity about how this mind, this whole mind-body process is working. You know? And it's not theoretical, it's not philosophical. He saw it through his own experience and the teachings allow us to experience it all for ourselves you know? and, and to test it, to see for ourselves whether this is true or not. So thank you again for your attention and I'll see you tomorrow. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.